You're listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the Internet to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web shapes popular opinion, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com. Josh Burnoff, co-author of the book Groundswell, Winning in a World Transformed by Social Technologies, goes on the record online. You may imagine that you have a relationship with Apple, but your relationship with Apple is a lot like your relationship with Charlize Theron, you know. You think you love her, but she doesn't know you exist. Okay. Thanks for downloading this episode of On the Record Online. Today we have a one-on-one interview with uh, Forrester Research Vice President and Principal Analyst Josh Burnoff uh, and co-author of the book Groundswell, Winning in a World Transformed by Social Technologies. I'm reading it now, enjoying it very much. He co-authors with uh, Forrester Analyst Charlene Lee. Uh, I invited Josh to keynote uh, the upcoming Digital Impact Conference, uh, June 9th and 10th in New York, uh, that is presented by the Public Relations Society of America, and he accepted. So the opening keynote um, on the 9th of June, downtown New York, uh, will be uh, Josh Burnoff. Uh, this is a little taste of some of the things he'll be talking about. Um, I, I was able to uh, get David Carr, the uh, columnist from the New York Times. He writes a column called The Media Equation on Mondays uh, on the business page. Uh, which many of you may read, um, to agree to Keynote Day 2, which is really exciting. And then uh, I also put together a panel of um, uh, journalists and reporters uh, for a uh, a master's um, panel uh, for the lunch on day one. We're going to have Jude Beersdorfer. She's a New York Times tech podcast producer. We've got uh, Stephen Baker. He's a senior writer at Business Week. We've got uh, Richard Wilner over at the New York Post. And we have Chris Kaufman at Reuters, and we have Betsy Alexander, who is a former senior producer of the Today Show. Um, so I'm excited to get a conversation going with them about the impact of new media on the news gathering business. Also, end of day one, uh, May 9th, we have Spencer Ante uh, of Business Week. Many of you may know him. He is uh, uh, sort of e-commerce uh, reporter, uh, uh, editor over there, and he has a book coming out as well. So he's going to be doing a strategic recap for us on day one and then a book signing afterwards. So I hope you can make it. Uh, if you want more information, go to www.schwartzmanpr.com. Uh, also, if you are listening from Southeast Asia and would like to attend the uh, New Media PR Boot Camp, it is going to be at the Ministry of Information on May 20th and 21st, and you get a link to that as well at www.schwartzmanpr.com. Uh, now we have the interview with uh, Josh Burnoff um, about uh, his book, Groundswell, Winning in a World Transformed by Social Technologies. Uh, we are going to play it for you entirely unedited after this. Don't be left behind. Get the latest online PR tools and services from my press room. Powerful, easy to use, available on demand. Extend your sphere of influence online with iPressroom, tools for online media centers, virtual private press rooms, RSS news feeds, podcasts, and more at www.ipressroom.com. iPressroom, always on, even when you're off. Josh Burnoff, thank you so much for joining us. 
It's great to be here. Now, you have this book now that you wrote with Charlene Lee, The Gra- uh, Groundswell. And um, uh, tell me about the name. Why, why call it Groundswell? Why that name? We wanted to get people focused not on the technologies of Web 2.0, but on the social trend that's behind them, the sort of coming together of people and how they connect and draw power from each other online. And we thought the word groundswell was perhaps the best single word to encapsulate that. It's a very useful handle as people talking about the book. It's very simple for people to understand and remember. I've got to think that you wrestled with more than one name, though. Well, it's funny. There was an original title, which no one will ever hear. But, But the first thing we did, Charlene and I, when we got together about this, is we actually wrote the copy that we imagined would appear on the back of the book. And the idea was, if you picked up this book and read this, you'd say, oh, I have to read this. And then we were going to build the book out under that copy to fulfill that promise. And it was in the process of writing that copy, we wrote a sentence that included the word groundswell. And both of us got this sort of look at each other like, that's a very interesting word. So at that point, it got its claws into our brains. And uh, from there on, uh, that's what the book was called. So I guess, you know, when I hear groundswell, you know, you can't help but think tipping point. You know, this idea of a... uh, of a common expression that evokes you know, so much meaning behind it. Uh, but groundswell, obviously, you know, when, when I think of tipping point, you know, the idea of leverage is in my mind. The, the, the idea that a small force could have a large impact. Groundswell brings a different kind of idea to my mind. The idea that people together could have, could, could be a large force. That's true, and it's interesting. There are a lot of books out, and there were even when we conceived this book, that describe this phenomenon of people coming together, drawing power from each other, and threatening institutions like corporations and governments. But we wanted to take the next step. The time has actually come for folks to, uh, in business to be able to take advantage of this power, to actually become a part of this movement And as long as you respect that people are powerful, you can actually accomplish business goals here. And that's what we wanted to get at. So this is not a book about the trend. This is a book a little bit about the trend and mostly about how you as a business person can take advantage of it. Well, let's talk for for a minute here about the idea of challenging institutional power. How does uh, does social technologies uh, challenge institutional power? Well, there have always been people who are unhappy with corporations and products. And it was typically very difficult for them to get heard or to recognize there might be others who had similar ideas. But with the technologies that allow people to connect now, that stuff is extremely easy to spread. There are famous examples that people may know about, like the... uh, uh, technician who fell asleep on a guy's couch while he was waiting to fix a cable modem. That's now the number one search result when you search for Comcast on uh, on YouTube. And there are examples that people may not know about, like the uh, National Pork Board that sent a cease and desist letter to a woman who calls herself the Lactivist, 
and had a T-shirt she was making to raise money that said the other white milk on it, sort of a breastfeeding uh, promotion. And in fact, that woman turned the power of the groundswell to her advantage by writing about that on her blog. She got a whole bunch of people to shame the National Pork Board into uh, uh, backing off from from uh, its intimidating tactics. So in general, you cannot assume now that a few people who are unhappy with your product are just going to grumble and no one will notice. If your product has got problems, if your service has got problems, people will be talking about it, everyone will know, and you're going to have to deal with that. Obviously, the the open source community, I mean, the the real purists would say uh, business objectives should not be achieved with social technologies. It should be really about grassroots phenomena. So how does a business looking to leverage this technology cope with the fact that, um, in many respects, um, that business may not be welcome in online social communities? Well, we actually have been talking about that in a series of blog posts. We draw a continuum between what we call the purists. These are the people who believe that corporations don't really have a role in this phenomenon, and it's about people connecting with other people. And the corporatists, these are the, these are the folks who say, hey, we're corporations, we're in charge, we control the money, and we're going to control this movement as well. The, the attitude we take, which I call the pragmatist attitude, and in fact this is a book for pragmatists, says, yes, this is a powerful movement, you cannot control it. However, if you behave in an authentic way, it is possible to participate. So if you put up a page in Facebook and allow people to become friends with your company, that's fine. And the people who are becoming friends aren't under any illusions. They know that you're promoting your sports shoes or your, your, um, uh, you know, your, your company's business, and they may be a fan of yours, and you might as well take advantage of that. The same applies to starting your own blog. People do want to hear what the CEO of Dell might want to say or what the CEO of Sun Microsystems might want to say. So it is entirely reasonable for corporations to participate here. It's just not so easy for them to be connecting with people on an individual basis when they're used to shouting in their marketing departments and listening to hear if any echo comes back. Talk to us for a minute about social technographic profiles. What are they, and uh, how did you come up with them? Well, one of the uh, principles in the book is that you should do this strategy in the right order. And we help people with an acronym we call POST, P-O-S-T, that stands for People, Objectives, Strategy, and then Technology. The most important thing is to start not with the technology, but with the people. So if you're marketing to college students, you need to recognize that they're extremely active on social networks. If you're trying to reach small business owners, you might ask a question like, well, just how active are they, and is it reasonable for me to create a community to include them in? And in the book, we actually describe the profile of different groups of people as a a sort of preliminary to the strategy. If you're targeting small business, you want to look at that profile. If people are interested in the profile of their own customers, by the way, they can go to our website at groundswell, 
www.forester.com, and that's Forester with two R's in the middle. And we actually have a tool there where you can profile your own customers from 10 countries in the world based on their uh, age and gender demographics. That's a great way to get started with strategy. And, and, and break down the social technographics profile. It, it, it determines what? Well, people participate in the groundswell in different ways. There are the people we call creators, for example, who are those who are maintaining websites, writing blogs, loading video. They're the most active people in creating content online. Then you have critics who are reacting to that content by commenting on blogs, for example, or participating in discussion forums. You have collectors that are using technologies like RSS and voting sites like Dig, uh, joiners who are involved in social networks like Facebook, and spectators who are just observing this content but aren't actually participating in it. Uh, And finally, the inactives who are completely untouched by social technologies. So if you look at any group of people, you want to ask yourself, are there a lot of creators in that group? If I'm going to start a website for Toyota, I need to know if there are a lot of creators among Toyota owners to know whether I should be worried about blogs and uploads of video. The biggest mistake you can make in the beginning is to assume that your customers have certain tendencies when actually their participation in the groundswell may be completely different from what you think it is. Now, when I'm looking at the um, illustrations in the book, um, I see the base for some of these uh, stats seems to be quite low. And I wonder, at what point does, you know, does, does a survey like this become statistically relevant? I mean, what size of a control do you need to have real confidence in these numbers? Well, we're lucky, or I should say I'm lucky that I work at Forrester Research where we have the most extensive set of consumer surveys that are possible uh, or that are existent out there. So we are surveying hundreds of thousands of consumers every year, and our largest survey in the United States, for example, covers 60,000 people. Uh, You can go down to a group that's a half a percent or one percent of that 60,000 people and still have enough to do a reasonable profile. When we profiled car brands recently, we looked at 30 different car brands. And it's true that if you ask me about people who own Hummers, I can't tell you much because the six people in our survey that owned Hummers, well, we can't profile six people. But of the 30 car brands, there were 14 brands, including Mazda, Pontiac, Chevrolet, Toyota, um, that we had enough people to be able to give a reasonable profile. And, you know, I, I can tell you that if you know demographically what your customers are like, you got that free tool. If you really want to know about your specific brand or people involved in a behavior, certainly feel free to give us a call at Forrester, and we probably have got enough data to help you out. When you look at all this data, what surprises you most about what you've learned? Well, one of the things that surprised me is that uh, while it is certainly true that age is the most important variable in determining people's level of participation, that it's inaccurate to say that older people are not participating in these technologies. In fact, people over 45, and especially people over 55, are participating. It's just that it's more like 10% of them as opposed to the larger numbers, you know, 80 or 90% you get among young consumers. 
And that's interesting. It means that if you're trying to reach that group of people, you uh, probably don't want to spend all your money on this, but it's still a reasonable idea. If you look at cancer survivors, for example, which is a group that's significantly older, they're very active out there in communities because their emotional need and need for information makes it possible for them to triumph over uh, what might normally be something that an older person wouldn't be interested in. There's such a huge variation by uh, nation, by country. So uh, Asia, for example, has some of the highest rates of participation in blogs and social networks of anywhere in the world. And if you look at a place like Korea or the people we interviewed in uh, the big cities in, in China, you see the future of North American participation because they're, they're uh, you know, more than half of them are involved in blogging, for example. Now, um, when, when, when you, when you're advising clients who are sort of circling social media as, as a way to communicate, are there any broad can, can make, um, by category of organization, and, and I'll rephrase it, um, would you say corporations are more interested or, or, or potentially more uh, vulnerable uh, than associations or NGOs? Um, were you able to break it down by classification of, of organization? Well, uh, just looking within industry, there is some variation by, uh, by vertical, but it's also varied by corporate culture. So I've talked to different financial services organizations, for example, financial services being a regulated industry, you would expect them to uh, be going slow here, and they are careful. But I've talked to uh, mutual fund companies that are that are going great guns with this and others that are sort of cowering in a corner saying, oh my gosh, this looks sort of scary, can you help us? Uh, when it comes to nonprofits, uh, there is typically a fair amount of fear associated with this. And there's also the question of listening. In a strange way, a profit-making organization really ought to be listening to its customers, and it typically is uh, in some way, and this is a way for them to open up more. On the other hand, a nonprofit organization isn't necessarily sure who its customers are and isn't necessarily good at listening. And this may be sort of shocking to find out that your own idea of what you think your organization is about is pretty different from what the people who are connected with you think it's about. Do you see any relationship between stock performance at a publicly traded company and its willingness to dip its toe in the water? Are organizations uh, that are under pressure uh, more likely to give this stuff uh, a shot than uh, organizations that are category leaders? I. The thing that makes the difference is whether the senior leadership is willing. And, you know, what I'd love to say is if you do this, your stock price will go up. But, of course, there's no evidence of that, and it's very early in this to be looking at at that kind of, of a change. Also, you use the words dipping your toe in the water. Dipping your toe in the water will not change anything except the beginning of the change of attitude at your company. So you're certainly not going to move your stock price by starting some little community around one product and seeing what happens. But in the cases where we looked at companies that had been at this for a year or two, and the examples in the book are Dell and Unilever, 
we were able to demonstrate that uh, as this spreads from one department to another and from one product group to another within the company, you actually can change the company culture to be more responsive. And I think you can make an argument at Dell specifically that once they started listening and connecting with their customers, a big difference in the company's ability to be responsive and successful. And now the CEO, Michael Dell, talks in terms of 100 million customer contacts a year. That's a kind of of uh, connection that I'd never heard a CEO talk about before, and I think that's going to be a very positive step for Dell. On the flip side, uh, current cover of Wired magazine um, was sort of a, a wordplay on um, uh, you know do no evil and picture of apples, uh, the Apple computer icon surrounded by um, barbed wire, and the story, which I imagine you probably read, did you? I, I saw it. I didn't read the story now. The story was uh, pretty much uh, that, um, you know, hey, here's a company that's a category leader, uh, and it's surprisingly opaque in the face of social media and social technologies, uh, yet it's celebrated amongst, uh, you know, content creators and, and, and all sorts of people across the social technographics profile. How do you explain a phenomenon like that? I can explain it pretty easily. Apple has substituted brilliance in uh, its understanding of its customers for uh, for engagement. So you may imagine that you have a relationship with Apple, but your relationship with Apple is a lot like your relationship with Charlize Theron. You know, you think you love her, but she doesn't know you exist. <laughs> um, so uh, how can you survive like that? Well, in order to survive like that, you have to be so brilliant at designing products that you can imagine what the next thing will be and get it right nearly every time. And uh, that's great if you happen to have Steve Jobs at the head of your company. But I think Apple's on a hot streak. It won't last forever. Uh, They will come up with ideas that don't catch on. Apple TV seems to be one of them. And because of that, uh, eventually, these companies that are just plugging along, like HP and uh, Sun and Dell, that that actually have set themselves up to be more customer-focused and have more customer connections, may start to creep up on them in some places. Now, um, it says, actually, on, on, the, on the jacket cover... Um uh, you'll see how marketers Proctor and Gamble proved that subtle marketing within a community was four times as effective as television. Um, I, I want to talk for a minute about ROI. Uh, the Arthur Page Society just came out with a report saying that lack of ROI and lack of measurement is the number one reason more companies haven't adopted uh, social technologies. Uh, what uh, sort of breakthrough understanding can you give us about how to measure and prove a return on social media technologies? Oh, that's a great question, and I only say that because so many people come to us and say, I want to start a community, or I want to start a blog, or I want to create a presence in my space, without having any idea what they're actually trying to accomplish. It's as if all business sense has been thrown out the window. If you start with a specific objective, and we mention five of them in the book, listening, talking, energizing, supporting, and embracing your customers, if you start out with a specific objective for your social application, uh, 
then you have a chance of success. But that only works if you can measure the progress toward that objective. I'm actually working on a report right now about that measurement. And they're not the same for each objective. If you're trying to generate awareness, then you want to do surveys to find out if awareness has actually improved. Um, at companies like Fiskars, which is a company that makes scissors and crafting supplies, and at Dell, they're very carefully measuring whether there have been changes in sentiment about the company, um, whether people are mentioning it in more positive ways. Uh, you can also look at whether the people involved in your application are actually buying things. Uh, and unless you can have an idea of exactly what you're trying to accomplish and a measurement, you don't know whether you're getting anywhere. You don't know whether the changes you're making are improving things. And you end up in a situation like a company that called us a little while ago and said, we need your help. We have this vibrant community. It's not doing anything for the company. How can we shut it down? I don't really want to get that call. I'd rather get the call that says, we started this community, we had an objective to energize our best customers, and we've proven that the energized customers uh, typically contact another 62 other people and generate a 15% increase in sales among those people. Then you know you're getting somewhere. Let's talk for a minute about the company that, that does call and says, hey, there's this community, we want to shut it down. Um, you know, Is there a benefit to creating a forum uh, for your customers to dissent and challenge you uh, under your own corporate website's banner? Well, uh, I think there is. One of the things we found is that in companies that have, have a enthusiastic or even generally positive customer base, that if you have detractors in your community, that other people will rush to your defense. Your own customers will rush to your defense in a very uh, positive and enthusiastic way. In fact, in, uh, in our uh, report that we did with uh, Jeremiah Aoyang, one of my colleagues on community, we talked specifically about how to deal with detractors, and there are some kinds that you just have to kick off of your, your community so they're not, uh, they're not disruptive. But you are going to have to put up with a certain amount of dissent, and I would say you have to be careful. I did a blog post a couple of days ago that the point of which was, what do you do if you're a company and most of your customers dislike you? And if you are, then I would say starting a community is perhaps not the best way to begin here because they are already dissing you. You will create a place where they can diss you uh, right there on your own site, but it's not going to accomplish anything productive to, to gather them all together in one place so they can recognize how much they all hate you instead of hating you individually. We're talking to uh, Josh Burnoff. Uh, he is the co-author with Charlene Lee of Groundswell, winning in a world transformed by social technologies. Um, last question, what impact do you think social technologies has on the, the business of public relations? What, if anything, should PR people be doing to incorporate or not incorporate these technologies and how uh, we communicate on behalf of organizations? Well, I think that public relations companies have typically been used in a very tactical way to either try and um, create an impression over a short period of time or to try and deal with a problem over a short period of time. Uh, but 
from the PR professionals I've dealt with, there's a lot of more of deeper thinking going on about companies and their image, which can be really helped by social technologies. If you think of a community of folks that you're working with as an asset, then you recognize that you can generally make long-term improvements in the company's image. At, at Fiskars, which I mentioned before, they started their community to try and energize a few folks, but they're now using it as an asset to try and, and uh, demonstrations at stores all over the place and, uh, and test out new product ideas. This is a space that PR rarely gets into, but it certainly gets the PR people who do get into it pretty excited. Uh, so I think as a public relations professional, you should look at these eruptions not as a threat, but as an opportunity and figure out how you can help the companies you work with to create these sort of assets, which they'll be able to use to influence large numbers of people over the long term. Josh Bernoff, Vice President and Principal Analyst at Forrester Research and author of Groundswell, uh, Winning in a World Transformed by Social Technologies, along with analyst Charlene Lee. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Eric. It's been great to be a part of this. You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the web to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web impacts corporate reputations, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com.